This is The Ethicist, a new podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce those co-hosts. Jack Schaefer is a media writer for Politico. Welcome, Jack. I'm ready for the tricky questions. I'm so glad. And Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. I'll take the easy ones. <laughs> we all want to take the easy ones. And coming up, we're going to look into the ethicist's email inbox to see what common themes or questions readers have sent us this week. And here is the first. I'm an inveterate crafter, to the extent that one room in my house is my crafting room. But ever since the Hobby Lobby decision came down, I have studiously avoided its stores, despite my deep and abiding love of the place. I know there are some decent retail substitutes out there, but none that match the giant warehouse of glitter and balsa wood that is Hobby Lobby. Would it be ethical to shop there if I were to, say, make a donation to Planned Parenthood every time I did? Sort of like buying ethical carbon offsets. And if it were ethical to do so, what percentage of my total purchase should I be donating? Thanks. Signed, name withheld, Austin, Texas. And do you want to just clarify a little bit why the decisions of Hobby Lobby and the decisions concerning Hobby Lobby might prompt our letter writer? Right. So Hobby Lobby is a closely owned corporation that uh, has a religious view that it should not offer contraception to its employees. So this writer is apparently pro-choice or believes that contraception should be available from employers. I should also say that the individual has really given a resounding advertisement for Hobby Lobby and talking about it in such fulsome terms. Well, they have given a terrific promo for Hobby Lobby. And part of what I would want to say is, please don't forget Joanne Fabrics and Crafts. Please don't forget Michaels. Please don't forget A.C. Moore on the East Coast and Pat Catans in the Midwest. And please don't forget your local independent arts and crafts store, which are in every major city all across the United States. And I understand there is something about the glorious, cavernous, glitter-filled moment of Hobby Lobby. On the other hand, you can probably find something almost as good and possibly smaller and better elsewhere. And I think if part of this person leading a good and happy life is that they don't want to give money to Hobby Lobby because they wish to support a different cause, in this case, Planned Parenthood, then contribute to Planned Parenthood by all means and maybe work for Planned Parenthood because actively supporting causes you believe in is part of leading a good and happy life. And I would really say as much as you love Hobby Lobby, if you feel very strongly about this, as Jack would say, if you have a really high temperature on this subject, don't shop at Hobby Lobby. If you have a lower temperature on it, then by all means, be actively engaged financially and personally with Planned Parenthood. What about you, Jack? What do you think? I think in this case that the letter writer needs to look in their heart and see what they think is ethical. They're contributing to uh, the profit margin of a company that is a bad actor in our society. Now, I don't think that Hobby Lobby is a bad actor. I'm much more pluralistic uh, than, than the letter writer. But I think the letter writer if their heartfelt sense is that Hobby Lobby is, a, is a, a vile and bad actor, they need to boycott the place. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I agree that we can and probably should take Hobby Lobby out of this and just say this is a self-assigned ethical stand. Mm -hmm. You don't 
get out of a self-assigned ethical stand by paying your way out of it, sort of period. So you either take a stand or you don't take a stand, and that's up to the letter writer. But don't pretend that paying your way out of it is Well, this often comes up in, in the letters that we get in which somebody has said, I want to do this. Can I persuade you that this is the ethical stance? And like Jack, I often feel like in their heart, people actually know it's not the ethical stance, but they're sort of hoping that maybe there is in sort of a back room somewhere, a highly technical definition of what an ethical stance might be. And it might include, you know, sending an extra five bucks to Planned Parenthood. And again, part of what struck me so much in this one is that there really is a practical solution to the problem. It's not as if they will never be able to do crafts again. And that back room may exist. It's just not. It would be behind this room that we're talking. It's way, for, it's yeah. way further back. <laughs> and, and I think that just to riff off of that, I, I mean, I want to treat this reader a little bit more gently, I think, which is that I think that the writer intuits in a sense that there's not a way out of this because the writer says, how much right, should I give to Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. in order to offset going to Hobby Lobby? And if you start thinking about it, it's a really great way to ask the question because it's really hard to come up with an answer to that. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking this is exactly what sharpens my intuition about how this is categorically different from the carbon offset issue. Because in the carbon offset issue, there is a set standard of cap of emissions, right? And then you trade off so that nobody in the aggregate or we as a society in the aggregate don't go above that cap, right? Here, it's really hard to say that there is a cap, right, uh, of acceptable, you know, ethical behavior because we live, as you said, in a pluralistic society. So nobody could actually objectively say this is the amount we're willing to tolerate. And so therefore, we couldn't come up with a sum of money that the letter writer should donate to Planned Parenthood as an offset. So the analogy breaks down. And that in itself is important. Okay. Our next question, from my point of view, has to do with the nature of fiction. By his own admission, Chris Kyle enjoyed shooting people and considered Iraqis savages. The film, based on his life, American Sniper, portrays him as someone more humane and conflicted and turns him into a role model. Is it ethical for a filmmaker to soften a real-life character and present him in a more flattering light? Or should the filmmaker have given us a more accurate portrait of Kyle, warts and all, at a risk of glorifying his less exemplary behavior? Jack said earlier that he would leg wrestle me for dibs on this question. And because this is a family show, I'm just going to defer to him and give him the first crack. Absolutely. Leg wrestling, not necessary. Jack. You're a good man, counselor. I would tell the the letter writer that there's nothing new about an American sniper uh, softening the a real-life story of an individual that it's based on. You know, you can go back to Shakespeare's Henry V, which depicts in heroic terms an unjust war of aggression against France and war crimes committed by Henry V. That is the execution of prisoners at Agincourt. And there's, there is absolutely no question about it that war crimes were committed uh, by the Hen- Henry V, yet Shakespeare presents him heroic, softens the image, softens the crime. And if the letter writer said, you know, should he not go to Henry V because of that, I would say no. Practically every real-life story that is turned into a novel or a, a stage play or a movie is softened, is shaped by its creator's um, 
whims and wishes and um, intuitions. And I'd say, go ahead, uh, just go to the movie, don't buy the popcorn, because that's the real ripoff. Well, the, the ethical question for the letter writer, and I agree with you about the popcorn, the ethical issue for the letter writer is about the filmmaker, not about whether or not he should go to the movie, but is it ethical for the filmmaker to soften a real-life character and present him in a more flattering light? And well, I, I, thought I, got, I thought I got to that at the beginning. That, that no, no, I think that that's if the it heart is, of if it. it is, that, that if it is unethical, then, then 95% of the uh, fictional literature based on true life is unethical, and I, and I reject that premise. That, yeah, it that, has nothing to do that, with that, ethics. That real life, real life, real life is a starting point. The job of the filmmaker is not the more accurate portrait. In a documentary, you could argue that you know you are pushing for the more accurate portrait, but documentaries are themselves also creative works, and so accurate is not necessarily. The standard. I mean, people, I think, often try to do their best and to be objective in documentaries, but documentaries themselves also have a point of view. But just to be contrarian here, I mean, doesn't a lot have to do with how it's being portrayed to the public? So I actually went and looked at American Sniper to see how it was advertised, mm-hmm. and it said based on a true story. So mm-hmm. I think that gives enough leeway. So I would agree with both of you with regard to that. But remember that controversy about um, James Frey? Is that how you pronounce it? In A Million Little Pieces? He presented that as a memoir. He did. Right. And then it turned out that this was not highly yeah. fictionalized. Right. That and was I think a that the American public really felt rightly that that was unethical behavior. And when Oprah said, right, she made some version of Auden's line of the truest poetry is the most feigning, mm-hmm. right? Like he may have shaded the factual truth, but he got at the truth of the phenomenon. She got pilloried and she was a total mensch. And she said, you know, I, I recant. I was wrong about that. So there are times when we expect either explicitly or implicitly as readers or watchers that something that's being presented to us is the truth. So I think it's all in how it's framed to the reader or to the watcher. Well, in movies, there is based on a true story, which is almost a requirement now for many, many feature films in America. And then there's the even softer inspired by a true story, which I understand to mean we have used one of the names of one of the relatives, and just like there was a dog in that family, there is a dog in this one, and nothing else is required. Um, and in this case, I think all of us agree about the movie maker, which is based on a true story. It's not a representation of fact, and the filmmaker is free to shade and shape as the filmmaker desires. And if you disagree with the portrait, then you should... Make a point of letting people know that. But we have to stop agreeing like this because they're going to cancel this podcast. I know. <laughs> More fighting. Well, let's see what we can do. So on to our next question, which for me has to do with crazy, not crazy, and how you actually help somebody. I live in a small building where everyone has lived for more than 10 years, and we function well together. A woman in one apartment is frightened that a mild-mannered fellow in another apartment is angry with her. More than a year ago, she actually met with and told him about this. He has tried to reassure her that he is not angry. Since that time, she has frequently left messages on my answering machine, talking about her worry. She begs me to not tell her husband that she calls me, saying that he gets angry about her fear. I've advised her to see a psychiatrist, and she has. When she told me the neighbor was plotting against her, I advised her to tell her doctor. And she did. 
She leaves me messages when she is less afraid, telling me her medication has been adjusted and she is feeling better. We never speak, as she is very shy and uncomfortable speaking face-to-face. She seems totally harmless. I do not tell her husband or the neighbor about her calls or messages. Am I doing the ethical thing by keeping her confidence? Or do I have an obligation to tell my other neighbors about her problems? She seems to want only reassurance from me that our neighbor is not angry or plotting against her. And she seems to respond to my text, telling her not to worry and advising her to speak with a psychiatrist about her fears. Signed, name withheld. So I didn't see the letter writer as having made any promise to keep this information confidential. So I would actually go to the husband, so long as we don't suspect abuse. Like, so he gets angry could mean a lot of things, but unless you mean domestic abuse or something equally or similarly dire, you know, I say go to the husband. I wouldn't say go to the person in apartment two because it seems like that's far outside the sphere of intimacy. For all we know, she's telling the man in apartment two that the letter writer is, you know, that she's scared of the letter writer. Like, we just don't know what's going on. Uh, So I think talking to the husband is the right way to go because I think that this individual, the woman, is a person who needs help and is not getting it. So when you think about the quickest way to get her that help, you know, the husband seems like the person who would be able to provide her with that. Well, my thought is um, when you're practicing lay therapist, uh, (laughs) as this uh, uh, letter writer seems to be, it's incumbent upon you to first do no harm. And I think the letter writer has already gotten way too involved in this person's personal psychodrama. I would counsel the letter writer to back off and say, really, this is not my role to play any sort of intermediary between you and your husband. I barely know either one of you. I'm just It's just an accident that we live next to one another and that what you really need to do is talk to your uh, doctor about this. And really, I think the highest and most eth- ethical thing and a difficult thing to do sometimes is just to turn around and walk away. And that's what I would counsel in this case. So Kenji says, share it with the husband. Jack says, cut it off entirely. I think I would have some concerns about sharing it with the husband because she says he gets angry. On the other hand, I completely agree with Jack and with you that this is none of the letter writer's business. And also, I am concerned that the letter writer believes that he or she knows things that, in fact, it's not clear to me they know. Like they go... Well, I told her to go to a psychiatrist, and she did. Well, how would you know that? In fact, what you have is her self-report. Exactly. You know, she says her medicine is helping. Well, that may or may not be true. So, you know, it's entirely possible that the neighbor is using this sort of pseudotherapy relationship to put all of this energy. These are a lot of phone calls. These are a lot of messages. These are a lot of encounters instead of seeking therapy. And that would be my only inclination towards maybe going towards the husband, which is to say, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, I know this has been a concern. I am really not the right person. And I hope that you'll be able to find some way of finding some kind of treatment that is more useful because I am not the vessel. Let me shoot one back to you, Amy. If the letter writer has already promised not to go to the husband and now goes, is that unethical? Because it it appears from the tone of the letter that she has given the woman assurances that she will not speak to the husband because he will get mad. And if the letter writer does what Kenji says, it seems like you're crossing an ethical tripwire here. 
Well, it's tough because the letter writer says she begs me not to tell her husband. And I was going with Kenji's reading that although the letter writer says she begs me not to tell her husband, the premise hasn't been made. On the other hand, that is often a way to end this kind of relationship, which is to say, Mrs. Neighbor. I am so clearly not the person who can help you, and I am very concerned. And the more messages and the more phone calls I get, the more concerned I am. Were they to continue, I would really feel the need to share this with your husband because of my concern for you. It's two against one, Kenji. We're going to give you a chance to to join the uh, complete and absolute true verdict. (laughs) (laughs) I guess uh, my response would be, you know, how would all of us feel if you did walk away, which I agree is sometimes warranted and sometimes the hardest thing to do, and then something terrible happened. So I agree that the letter writer isn't helping this woman. I think that the letter writer is actually egging her on. But I do think some intervention is warranted. And so I I do this with a heavy heart. Like this is all a very much like a for lack of anything better, you know, mm-hmm. if there were some other party that seemed like was on the landscape who could be uh, enlisted here. But I do think that there is some obligation. And maybe, Jack, I would be more inclined to agree with you if we were dealing on a blank slate. But this person is already so embroiled that I do think that, with the best of intentions, has become the confidant and the conduit for this individual. And the writer needs to redirect that towards a more proper person. And the most likely candidate here is the husband. It could also be that the letter writer could say, Mrs. Neighbor, I am really concerned. I'd like the name of your psychiatrist so that I might contact them. Because although the psychiatrist can't say anything, they can listen. And so if the letter writer would feel better, you know, calling and saying, doctor of neighbor, I'm really concerned about my neighbor. I am not the right vessel, and I want to make sure you are aware of what's going on. The doctor doesn't have to say anything at all except goodbye at the end of the conversation. He, can re- he or she can receive the information without violating confidentiality in any way. I love that solution, actually. So, so I, I think that reveals to me, so I'm being persuaded here, like I think that reveals to me that what I really want is some affirmative step to get this, not to just say, I'm the wrong person, go away, but rather to say, I'm the wrong person, let's get this to the right person. If they could do that, I think that that might help. And that's it for The Ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our theme music was written by the band Broke for Free. And for Jack Schaefer and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom, and we'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.